as a church, how can we grow more in this community? How can we grow more than, than just being a group of people that get together on a Sunday morning to be brothers and sisters, to be family? How can we reach out to each other so that there's nobody that comes in through these doors and, and feels alone? Um, so if, if you've been here the past two weeks, Pastor Brad has preached on how, to, how we can live in community, um, how we can encourage one another in the faith, and also just how to show genuine love, be genuine people that reach out and just love one another. And today I'm going to be following up with that. And um, specifically, we're going to be looking at how we can be more compassionate people. So the text I'm going to be studying today is actually found in Colossians. And so Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote it from prison. And it's funny because Paul had never actually visited the city that Colossians is written to, Colossae, but a man named Epaphras traveled to where Paul was. Um, he traveled all the way down to, to Ephesus, which was down the river, and he heard this message that Paul was preaching about Jesus, and he immediately wanted to know more, so he spent some time with Paul there, and he immediately knew in his heart that he also needed to share this message with other people. So he went back to his hometown, and he started a church, and he was, he, you know, they were growing, and people were excited, but as you know, whenever people are gathered together, there's bound to be various problems that come up, because we are people. And so Paul, later, he decides he, he's going to write um, this church in Colossae. And he, he not only does it just to, to write to encourage them, but also to vouch for Epaphras, the guy who originally took the gospel there, and he calls him a beloved fellow servant. What I love about this, this book, uh, or this letter, Colossians, and, and also the story about Epaphras is that it, it really shows what happens to a Christian or to a person that, that gets the gospel. You know, they don't, it doesn't just sit there and do nothing. It grows, and it, it causes us to reach out and do things that we probably wouldn't do before. It causes us to show love and to forgive others, and, and Paul knew that that church needed more encouragement in that area and loving and forgiving other people. So what we are looking at is, is, is a passage that, that paints a beautiful picture of what church should really be. And Paul equates it similarly with putting on these new clothes, these clothes that, are, that demonstrate love for one another. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Colossians 3. If not, we're going to have um, the scripture on the screen. There's Bibles in the back of these black chair pockets as well. But in Colossians 3, verse 12 through 15, it says this. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Now, as a body of believers, this is what we're called to, church. We're called to compassion and kindness, 
patience, forgiveness, love. But I wonder if that's what we're really known for. Uh, I, I challenge myself to think if, if I were to go down to Georgetown in the middle of the day when there's a bunch of cruise ships and I were to interview people coming off these cruise ships, people from all over the world who all have had different experiences with God's church, and I were to ask him, you know, what do you think of the Christian church? What, is, what are some characteristics of the Christian church? You know, um, I would hope that some of these would come out of their mouth, compassion, kindness, patience, forgiveness, and love. But I wonder what percentage would say that. And even if I found you after the service and, and I were to ask you the same question, you know, what would your response be? Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you would say something along the lines of, you know, Adam, I, I want to see a church like that. I really do. But my experience doesn't paint a place of compassion, kindness, patience, forgiveness, and love. You know, I can't change my past, and you can't change your past. And we all have certain baggage that we're carrying and experiences that, that change the way that we view things. But Paul explains a beautiful truth in this chapter that I feel like we really do need to understand before we exhort compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and love as a church. I think we need to understand this first truth that Paul is, is teaching us. So we're going to study that uh, in just a few moments, but first, why don't we pray? Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it teaches us, and it opens our eyes, and it reveals faults in our heart and faults in our life, Lord. I pray that we would all just be sensitive to, to what it is that you want to show us, that, that we would come to you in humility, and, and that we would ask for your compassion to just flood our life and that we would become compassionate people. I pray that you would give us just the ability to see these faults. And I pray that as a church that we would, we would just be strengthened in love and compassion and patience and kindness to each other. Lord, help us to be the church that you desire us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, when I was younger, I, I really enjoyed backpacking a lot. I think I still do. I just haven't done it in a while. Um, but one of my favorite memories was when I went backpacking in Wisconsin. And it was actually a part of a, a program that I did with my school. And we'd, it was a winter backpacking program. And what I remember from that trip was that it was horribly, horribly cold. And that it was very beautiful. The scenes were amazing, you know, seeing frozen rivers, frozen lakes, and snow. And it was, it was just very, very cold, especially at night. <laughs> um, but to prepare ourselves in, in taking this trip, we had to go through different training sessions because um, one of the, the most dangerous things about winter backpacking is obviously the cold that you are surrounded with at all time. And even though the, the year that I went, it was a weird December because um, it was cold, but not that cold. So it dropped down below freezing at night, but during the day it was about 35 degrees and it was raining. 
And so we consistently had to hike miles during the day, and during the night we would camp. Um, For us, hypothermia was a real threat, and we had to understand how to keep dry. If we, even just in our sweating of walking, that was dangerous. And especially whenever we were trekking and we had to cross a river or a lake. Now, when we crossed a river, it was always um, our leader, she would go first to assess the situation to see how dangerous it was. And she would go first and she would check out, you know, make sure that the ice was completely solid. There was one time we were actually crossed over a beaver dam and just to make sure that it was completely, you know, safe for us. But in the event that one person were to fall into the ice, swift action had to be taken. You know, it was crucial that the person had to be changed completely out of those wet clothes. I mean, they had to be stripped bare (laughs) because dry clothes on top of wet clothes does nothing for you. But you had to take that person out of the cold, freezing water. You had to strip them because, honestly, it was better to be humiliated than to be dead. And then you had to clothe them with these dry, warm clothes. Now, I think that there is a parallel here that I want to talk about. (laughs) I don't know if I'm the only one that struggles with maintaining a life filled with compassion and patience and kindness and love. I feel like a lot of times that we as Christians try to throw on these these clothes, (laughs) like Paul talks about, but we're still wet. (laughs) We're still very, we still have the wet clothes, the old clothes down next to our skin. And, you know, I believe that that Paul is encouraging the Christians in Colossae to completely remove all that is old in them so that they can then put on the new clothes and be warm. So that's what we're going to look like. And I'm actually, we're going to jump to Colossians 3 again. So same page as you were before, but we're actually going to move to verse 5. Okay? So verse 5 of Colossians 3 says this. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account, of the wrath, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practic- practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now in this verse, in in these um, six verses here, I want to examine how Paul encourages those from Colossae to, to take off the old clothes because as I mentioned with the backpacking example, in order for us to actually be warm and be loving and patient and filled with compassion, we need to remove these old clothes 
like before. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to examine each one of these verses. So I'm just going to read the first verse again, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It says it has to be put to death. I mean, that is, you cannot let it breathe. (laughs) You have to remove it 100% from your life. It will not just fizzle out. That's not what sin does. It has to be stomped out, and it has to be put to death. It is invasive in our lives, and it will take over an entire ecosystem if it is allowed to stay. Now, I got a picture of, um, of an invasive species that I hope will come up behind me. And you guys are sort of familiar, I'm sure, of invasive species. If you lived here in Cayman for a while, you know that there are green iguanas, which we've now been sort of eliminating, and lionfish. And these are two species that come into an ecosystem and they just start ravaging it all. They start taking everything, they take over all that was good, and instead it's just that's all you see now, or used to be a few months ago. You just see green iguanas all over the place. They have to be eliminated because it destroys what is actually there before. Now, what I have behind me is a picture of kudzu. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't sound like a a nemesis creature. It doesn't seem that scary. But it's it's funny because I'm originally from Georgia. And if you were to drive anywhere in rural Georgia, you would eventually see many scenes like this. Just it's a complete forest that is covered with these thick, leafy vines. Now, it, it... Curious enough, in the 1940s, the U.S. government actually encouraged people to plant this Japanese vine because it would help control erosion. But quickly they found out that that was a bad idea, and it started to overtake large pieces of land. It is so difficult to get rid of now that you have to get it all the way from the root. And it's, it's so difficult that it can even grow one foot a day. It's fast-growing, it moves in, and whenever it moves in, it's hard to get rid of. I got a second picture, yeah. So that's, that's in one year's growth, you see it completely overtake a house even. It's, it grows so fast, and I show that because it's, it's similar to what sin does in our life. Even if it starts out small, if we don't kill it, it will overtake everything. If it's allowed to remain, a small seedling soon will grow to cover and smother everything else. That's, so Paul says in, in verse 5, we need to eliminate it. We've got to put these things to death. All these things in our life, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, those things do not belong in your life because it will kill you. Let's look and see what it says in verse 6. Verse 6 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, that seems like a very harsh verse for me to read. You know, the wrath of God. Nobody really likes to talk about the wrath of God. But think about it like an owner of a plot of land where he sees the danger of this fast-growing weed. And it has to be stomped out. It has to be eliminated if we want to preserve what is good. And there's a decisive action by God because he is the creator and he knows what sin does to man. It ruins what it touches. 
And if you have a small vine and a beautiful fruit-bearing tree in the same plot of land, they could potentially coexist for a while, but eventually that vine would overtake that fruit-bearing tree and it would choke it out. Now, Romans 5, 6 through 9 shows us why the wrath of God is coming and and also the, the good news for all of those that say that they are under the blood of Jesus Christ. So it says this, I'm going to read it, I don't have it on the screen for you, but it says this in Romans 5, 6 through 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? God will put an end to all sin. And the wrath of God is a, is a wrath that will wipe away every tear, every trace of sin, and is for those that have been covered by the blood of Christ. It, it's something that we can actually look forward to as Christians because the wrath is coming to eliminate sin in our life. In verse 7, it says, And these you too once walked when you were living in them. Each one of us is guilty of this sin. All of us have fallen short. All of us have been infected with sin's poison. And not only did we indulge in sin every now and then, we were sinners. Verse 8, it says this, But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It's not just the visible sins that Paul is talking about here. It's not just the the big sins, you know, that that we see people with addictions with, and and so they're so physically evident. But there are so many sins that lie lurking within our hearts, and these are the sins it talks about. And all of those need to be thrown away. And, and, but the most dangerous thing about these sins is that we can consider ourselves good people, yet still let these sins run rampant in our life. That we could trick ourselves into thinking that everything's okay, everything's fine, I'm all good, when really it's still in our heart. So verse 9 says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So, church, we should not lie to each other. We shouldn't, um, we shouldn't try to hide these things even from each other. We should encourage one another. If you see somebody that is struggling, you help them. <laughs> you know, if you see somebody that has danger lurking in your life, you don't just leave them there and say, hey, you know, it's all good. But you also just don't say there's no hope for you. You are in sin, you are unaccepted in my presence, and I'm just cutting all relationship with you. How can we help each other the most? It's usually with truth, but truth with love. We got to know how we can help each other and how to help each other by putting off the old self, like it says in Colossians. You know, that that word in Greek, I'm not even going to try to, to say it in Greek, but it means to strip off, down, and away, and to be thrown away. It's such an emphatic verb that, that Paul actually invents in this passage that 
He's saying, you know, not only do you just take off that sinful nature, you throw it away because you don't need it. It's something that you're not going to pick up again. You don't need this. Take it away. Get rid of it. Verse 10 says, and have, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being renewed, okay? It's not, it's not something that just happens and bam, we're good, we're done. It's something that needs to constantly be happening in our life. I love what the, the translation in the NLT says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So this is a process that we're in, church. Each person that is, that is a trusting that Jesus is their Savior, they are being renewed and becoming more like him. That is our goal. And verse 11 says, There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Church, just look around. I mean, really, you can glance to your, to your neighbors. And if you love Christ, then love your brothers and love your sisters. You know, it's not about who deserves God's grace more than anybody else. And it's, it's not about how we're able to stand without God's mercy because if, if we're honest, none of us can stand. None of us can, can stand before God without his mercy and his grace. Paul is stating that we are followers of Christ. That is all that matters. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter our, our Christian pedigree or for how long we've been Christians. It's all about we need God to work in our lives, and we are all unable to save ourselves. You know, thankfully, it doesn't just stay there, you know, where we, we are found completely needing. God has done such an amazing thing for us. Jesus has, has done such an incredible thing for us. And in Luke 15, Jesus is, is, tells us a story, and I, I, I want to read you this story as well. And it's, it's demonstrating what Paul has been talking about throwing off this old nature and putting on this new nature and, and how we can become more compassionate people. He gives a beautiful lesson of compassion. A lot of you guys have, have you know, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son. And you know it for the most part, but let me read it, and then we're going to pull out a few truths from there, okay? So in Luke 15... Verse 11, Jesus starts like this. He says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants 
have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And his, father, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring a fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if Jesus just wanted to, to teach a story about compassion and a father finding a lost thing, then he could have stopped right there. I mean, we have a son who made foolish choices, who straight up went to his father and said, you know what, I'm out of the family. Just give me what, you know, what I deserve and let me be. And so he, that's what happened. And then he, he found out that he was an utter mess <laughs> and that he needed, he needed at least food. So he came back and he said, I'm going to beg before God and ask him to just receive me back and, and be a servant. But he celebrated him. And he said, I'm going to cover you. I see you in this tattered mess that you are, dirty, you know. You probably smell like pigs. <laughs> but I'm going to put the best robe that I have on you. Jesus could have stopped there, but he wanted to go on, and I think he wanted to, to teach those even more, a deeper story of compassion. It's about the older son. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, and as he, drew, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for... This, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here we see a self-righteous older son who won't even call his brother, brother. What does he say? He says that your son, when this son of yours came, but then what does a father do? He responds saying, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. You know, so many times we forget <laughs> that we are family. And we forget that we are brothers and sisters. And we, we cry out to God and say, you know, this person, this guy that I have an issue with him. <laughs> and we fail to remember 
And we're brothers, and we're sisters, and we're called to live together as a family. So when Jesus told this parable, he told it in a pack of three. You know, he first talked about a lost sheep that had gone astray and about a coin that was misplaced. And, and then he talks about the prodigal son. And I think the prodigal son teaches the, the story about compassion. So I ask you, how can we become more compassionate people? You know, we like to pretend that we have it all together. We like to pretend like we're the, you know, kind of like the older brother. We follow God's instructions. You know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. There's no sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry in my life. <laughs> and you know what? Our actions are important. I'm not, I'm not belittling that. And, and sinful deeds usually come with serious consequences. But consider the dangers, the dangers of the sins that are lurking in our own heart, like the older brother, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. These are sins that prevent us from rejoicing when our brother comes back from the dead. (laughs) These are sins that, that prevent us from celebrating whenever a sinner comes to God. The older brother wanted to throw his younger brother out. And these, it's all because of that wrath and that, that malice in his heart. And we need to understand that sin is, is always waiting to creep in. We have to eliminate it. Because we can be with the Father, we can be in his house, we can be doing the right things, but still our hearts are not in the right place. And we can find ourselves becoming very jaded and, and prejudiced against other people when they all, what they want to do is come home and find the Father. Can't you see that both sons needed to throw themselves at the foot of their father and confess their unworthiness to be called a child of God? Both of them. One, yes, squandered all, his, all the father's resources on prostitutes and reckless living. But the other one, <laughs> the other one scoffed at grace. And he demanded that his brother be thrown out and treated the way that he deserved. But the grace of the father told those around him to bring the best robe, <laughs> not the spare robe, the best robe. And he said, cover my child. You know, that's our role. We're not the older brother here. We're like the servants in the father's estate. And whenever a son or daughter comes back, we're to welcome them. We're to throw the best robe on them, give them the ring of the father, Celebrate their arrival. That's what we're supposed to do. Because God's grace is enough. And if God's grace is enough for us, or for me, it's enough for you. And can it be enough for your brother who has wronged you? Can it be enough for that that person that has scorned you and hurt you deeply? Now, 
I fully understand what I'm asking you to do. And some of you are going to question my sanity because you have been hurt. And people have done very hurtful, scornful things to you that they shouldn't have done. And it could have been a person standing behind a pulpit. Or it could have been a person that you met at church. Or it could have been a father or somebody in your family. And What I'm asking you to do is, is to forgive them and to have compassion on them. Because that is what the Heavenly Father has done for each one of us. He forgave our filthiest sins, our darkest, most hateful thoughts that we've ever had. Each one of us needs to come before the Father as a beggar before we come to him as an heir. <laughs> a beggar that understands that he has nothing that the rags in his possession should be surrendered, thrown away, cast down, never returned to, because the Father offers clothing that is warm. <laughs> it is loving, and it is compassionate. And all who are clothed with the Father have nothing to offer other than what already belongs to the Father. And that, church, is, is what the world needs. It's what you need. It's what the person sitting near you needs. It's what the Father offers. You can't do this alone. So, are you aware that you are lost without God? Or for those that have been found, do you remember what it felt like to be welcomed with compassion and love instead of righteous anger of the Father? Do you remember that feeling of just this overwhelming grace just flooding your life and, and forgiving you of all your sins? That's what we need to always remember, church. Compassion, it requires us to be interrupted. And if compassion, if what you're doing is convenient, then it probably isn't compassion at all. <laughs> Compassion is always going to cost you something. And if we were to examine the greatest story of compassion in the history of mankind, you would see a father sending his one and only son to die for our sins. Dying for our sins that he could say, cover my child. <laughs> it cost him so much. And for me to ask you to forgive others and to love others with compassion and patience and kindness, it's going to cost you something as well. It's not free. <laughs> Never forget what God has done for you. You know, I, I can't pay him back <laughs> for what he did for me, and neither can you. But as a church we still aren't able to pay him back. <laughs> but what our Father desires to see is his children extending compassion and grace to one another. To be on the constant lookout for sin that wants to grow and creep back into our life, constantly having to throw off this old nature and put on the new nature. And yes, it's going to be tiresome. It's not easy 
But remember what God has done for you. Never forget the compassion that he showed to you and extend that to others. So I'm going to close with this verse and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to go ahead and ask if the worship team can take the stage. I'm reading Colossians 3, 12, 14 again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put, and above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we are read, and when we read your word, we are confronted by so many areas in our life that are lacking compassion. Lord, I pray that each one of us would understand just how much it cost you to send your son and to extend compassionate grace to us, Lord. And it's not about how good we can be, and it's not about just how many rules we can follow, Lord, but a, a compassionate heart that wants to pour out compassion and grace and patience and kindness and humility and love on each other, God. Don't let us try to do this alone, Lord, but remind us that we have your Holy Spirit to guide us, to constantly warn us of all sin that is lurking in our heart, God. As a church, would you please just encourage each one of us to reach out to our brothers and sisters. To if we see somebody that is struggling, if we see somebody that is in danger, Lord, that we would reach out with love, that we wouldn't just let them be and that we wouldn't even have a self-righteousness that would rise up in our hearts, Lord, but that we would follow you. And when you tell us to cover somebody with your love, we would cover them. We would speak truth to them. And we would show them grace. Help us to do this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.